everybody to the Tag Your Podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I am Dave. And uh, we've got another special guest uh, on the line with us. If you see it on the screen in the uh, live university way, we have Josh Sharp. Hey, how you doing today, man? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. How are you all doing? Doing great. And let me just say, I'm going to plug, Josh is a graduate of my alma mater, Southwest Baptist University. I sat by Josh in intro to preaching always a blessing to get to sit by him and talk to him we have different views on some things but man what a cool brother in the lord um i hope that always we can look at folks that we disagree with and people that we have um just a great respect for and know hey god's charged us to engage people and uh, work together and this is like a place i just saw this article thought Man, Josh has knocked it out of the park. He can speak to things pastorally. He is also a recent graduate of Truett Theological Seminary in right. Texas, and he is our, now. Are you a uh, active writer for the Baptist Standard? Yes, yes. So I'm not like a fully blown paid staff member for the Standard, but I do I do write for them pretty regularly, and I uh, I mean, obviously, they put the disclaimer at the end of the articles that the author speaks for him or herself and their views are not necessarily the views of the Baptist standard as a whole, but yeah, I do yeah. right. I do have a great working relationship with them. That's awesome. Well, Josh, I could say a lot of nice things about you. The only thing I can't say is I never got to hear you preach in class and you didn't get to hear mm-hmm. me preach in class. Uh, that was one, one sad thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I was always impressed with you as a student. It was uh, really one of my highlights was getting to sit come to class early, talk to Josh, because I knew he was a sharp guy, and uh, he really is sharp. That's his last name. Yes, yes. Josh Sharp. But yeah, dude, yeah. thank you for uh, coming on here, and uh, we've got you on here for a certain article that you wrote, um, but you know, just to let you know a little bit of something to tag your history, you are on the longest live stream that we have done, so we are. <laughs> this is the first time that we've been on Facebook Live for pretty much four hours straight, so we haven't made it there yet. we got one more after this, but you are a part of uh, Tag Your History now, so that's awesome. But anyway, yeah, we brought Josh Sharp on because of an article that he wrote for the Baptist Standard about divorce, and so, you know, the, divorce in general, um, but especially in the light of uh, the coronavirus issue, um, where we're all inside, you know, we're, we're supposed to stay inside, we're not supposed to go out and have contact and make a lot of contact with people um one of the you know we're, we we didn't you know i guess there was the reductionistic part of culture where it's like let's flatten the curve keep people out of the hospitals and all that kind of stuff um you know we've talked about on the show you know well love your neighbor means a whole lot more than just keep people out of the hospital yes we do need to to take care of the sick we do need to protect the vulnerable but unfortunately this is one of those issues where define vulnerable what is who are vulnerable in something like this and whenever we have a lockdown you know i talked about you know the the law of god is that you don't take the working tools from people that was my situation you can't take the working tools from people uh in in israel in that sense you know you could i could have robbed or done something bad to somebody and they could have taken everything away from me but what i needed to make food 
that that's the grace of the law in Israel. And so in that sense, but you know, in this uh, article, as far as the, on the divorce issue goes, um, this is what brings up that case of people are locked inside. They can't make contact. They're told to stay away. And we've got people living together. And uh, there was an issue. There is an issue that has seen um, during this lockdown of, you know, uh, we know how we have child molestation going up. We have suicides going up. We've got to protect the vulnerable and the lockdown didn't protect the vulnerable. And so in, in light of, uh, you know, of this, you know, this article comes out on divorce and abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, I just love the way that you, again, are following what Christ has said and we're taking care of those who are vulnerable and those who are um, those who are at risk. So uh, give me just a little bit of motivation, like what caused you to put this article, Abuse is Biblical Grounds for Divorce, into uh, into the public. Uh, give us a little background on your thinking on it and uh, mm-hmm. share just some of your thoughts. Yeah. So on one level, this has been a point of academic interest for me for years. I've long wondered how to reconcile the seemingly very different instructions about divorce and remarriage that we see in places like Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 7, and so on and so forth. But what prompted me to write this article specifically was much more practical and personal. It wasn't simply an academic exercise. Yeah. And as you've mentioned already, uh, domestic abuse has gone up both in terms of frequency and severity because mm-hmm. of this pandemic and the resulting lockdowns. And sadly, abuse is very much a reality even within our churches, even yeah. even church leaders sometimes are guilty of abusing their spouses and that's a horrible tragedy. And so that is what prompted me to start writing the article. But at one point when I was working on it, I began to think to myself, you know, I'm, I'm not the pastor of a church. I'm not a professional scholar. Maybe I'm not the right person to be writing this article. And so I just sort of stepped back from a little bit, but then One evening when I was just scrolling through my Facebook feed, a friend of mine shared a news article talking about, you know, the rise of uh, domestic abuse in the wake of the pandemic. And the preview, the little thumbnail image that was shared on Facebook included a very, a very graphic picture of a woman's face. And this woman had clearly just been beaten by her husband. And it was very jarring, very disturbing to see. But when I saw that, something just snapped inside of me and I thought to myself, I need to finish this article. Even if I'm not the perfect person to write this article, someone needs to write it. Someone needs to say something about this and put this out there. And so I sat down and got to work and I finished it that night. And I I did run it past some people first. So I have friends who are pastors and social workers and I have an editor. And so I made sure to run it past them before putting it out into the world just to make sure I didn't say anything too terribly off base. But that was the process that led to this getting public. Yeah. And I mean, I was just going to say that this is very uh, important also is because we had uh, dealings with the venues church here in town over, this was like the, the uh, topic um, that got us into the discussion anyway, um, was because uh, the pastor of uh, the venues church here, um, which was a pastor of a Baptist church, but then there was a lot of liberal stuff that happened, and now it's like a whatever church. Anyway, we won't go into that. But anyway, he was uh, talking about like he was he was uh, interviewed on a news station here in town um, on mm-hmm. domestic violence. Um, okay. So his his way around it was 
Well, you know, if, uh, you know, when it comes to domestic abuse and, you know, there's talking about, you know, they said, well, your religion, your Bible tells you to submit, to submit, to submit, to submit. And instead of giving a biblical account for why their understanding of that is off, he just goes, well, you know, if, uh, if Jesus, you know, if it goes against what Jesus said in the Bible, so if Paul said something different than Jesus, then to hell with that part is what he said. So that's where the liberal goes. And then against the people that are like ultra, like, I don't know, still misreinterpreting it, which would be, we'll get into with the discussion with the Pharisees and, or not, the, yeah, it'd be the Pharisees and all the, the, the Jewish understanding of some of this biblical law stuff. But, you know, they go to that and say, well, you know, the, the problem was, was the church saying, well, you just needed to submit more. And that's what caused mm-hmm. most of the abuse was she was, she was told that she, there was no way out. Um, biblically that she could do so you've got two extremes here and we need to find out you know not just to find a middle way to find a middle way but does is there just a misunderstanding of what what is going on and so we have to practice as protestants sola scriptura here and does scripture actually say anything on it and that's why um the article you know so josh uh you know i gave you the nice roadmap for our discussion but always get things that come into my head as i'm working through this i guess one piece that would be really important uh how would you define abuse because the article is very clear abuse is biblical grounds for divorce so what is abuse uh and how would we define that as uh, bible believing christians like what is because i have people come to me like you know and i know and i don't know if you're going to be called to pastoral ministry for sure uh you're a fine scholar so who knows where god will take you um but every pastor that i deal with has had to do some type of marital counseling like what is abuse where do you draw the line um can you maybe give us a little insight on that because of some of the research that you've done yeah yeah so i think the best quick definition of domestic violence that i can think of actually comes from the national domestic violence hotline it's a really great resource a good first place to start if you're looking to learn more about domestic violence more generally. But what it says is that domestic violence, also called intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, or relationship abuse, is a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. Domestic violence includes behaviors that physically harm, arouse fear, prevent a partner from doing what they wish, or force them to behave in ways they do not want. It includes the use of physical and sexual violence, threats and intimidation, emotional abuse, and economic deprivation. Many of these different forms of domestic violence and abuse can be occurring at any one time within the same intimate relationship. Man, I think that that is uh, just so complimentary of what I see in Ephesians, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, you know, I always, I'm a big fan of, of Paul Washer, and he says, when people ask me how what they can pray for me about, I always say, pray that I'd love my wife like Christ loved the church. Um, Ephesians mm-hmm. chapter 5, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, I don't, I'm not isogeting anything when I say that definition, none of those things are occurring if a husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And I think that that's a, a fair piece there. Mm-hmm. So um, here's kind of the thing that I, I want to key in on. Um, let's say that you are uh, 
pastor and you are dealing with um, some people in your in your church uh, that are in this situation, here we are in an odd situation, uh, what would be some of the texts that you could point them to, a, maybe a guilty wife or even a husband who's being abused, like what would you say these biblical reasons are for a divorce and why, according to scripture, you can feel pretty good about that? That's a lot there, but that's kind of a generalization summary of some of those questions specifically. Yeah, so that's a great question. And before I dive into it too deeply, I think just sort of a prolegomena, so to speak, about scripture interpretation. Love it. I do very strongly believe in the perspicuity of scripture, that it's clear and understandable on its own in matters essential to faith. Yes. And so like things like Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and rising again on the third day. I think the Bible is abundantly clear and you don't need a bunch of extra degrees to sort of understand that. Amen. But there are secondary and tertiary theological issues that require a deeper dive. And in order to understand what scripture says about these things, it's really important to look into the cultural backgrounds. And you don't need a seminary degree or a PhD to do that kind of research. There are lots of great resources out there. But I would say that divorce and abuse and their relationship is one area where it's very helpful to have a basic grasp of the cultural and Jewish backgrounds. Uh, Well, the Jewish backgrounds of the New Testament and the cultural backgrounds of the Bible as a whole. So, sort of... Going to specific texts that I think would be helpful for understanding why a divorce is acceptable in cases of abuse, I would actually want to start with Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 through 11. Now, that's not a text that most Christians know about or that they think is particularly relevant to this discussion. And so, in its original context, Exodus 21, 10 through 11 concerned the rights of wives, specifically like more wives. So like if an Israelite man takes a wife and then takes another wife, mm. Exodus 21, 10 through 11 outlines her rights, which basically say, hey, he can't deny her conjugal rights. He can't reduce her portion of food, that sort of thing. And if he does those things, if he denies her those marital rights, she is able to go out without payment of money. That is, he doesn't have to be compensated for her leaving. She's free to go and remarry someone else. And that passage is actually really important because in the intertestamental period, you know, before and during the time of Jesus Christ, the Jewish people actually considered that text to provide a basis for divorce in cases of abuse, neglect, and so on and so forth. Now, in the time of Jesus Christ, pretty much all Jews agreed that divorce was permissible in some cases. They just didn't entirely agree on what cases constituted justifiable grounds for divorce. But they did all agree, based on this text, that if a husband was terribly neglecting or abusing or humiliating his wife, she could petition the court to approach him and convince him to grant her a certificate of divorce. Because according to the Old Testament, a man can initiate divorce, but a woman cannot. And so she would have, she would have to basically convince the courts to convince her husband to give her a divorce. But 
theoretically speaking, I don't know how often this actually happened, but at least theoretically, a Jewish court, if they found out that a man was abusing his wife, they could even go so far as to beat him until he agreed to grant her a certificate of divorce, which would free her to remarry. And so all the Jewish people would have agreed that, okay, in this kind of situation, he should give her a divorce and let her marry someone else. And really the biggest debate over divorce within the Jewish community at the time of Jesus Christ was a debate between the schools of Shammai and Hillel. They were two different rabbis and they argued over the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4. And so that's another section of the Mosaic Law which talks about divorce. And Moses uses somewhat cryptic language and he says, you know, a man may divorce his wife if he finds any indecency in her. Yeah. But what does that mean? What is this indecency that Moses is talking about? So the school of Hillel took the interpretation that any indecency was pretty much anything that the husband might find unpleasant or undesirable in his wife. So if she burned the toast when she was making breakfast, or if she wasn't pretty enough anymore, that counted as any indecency until a husband could give her a bill of divorce and send her away. The school of Shammai, on the other hand, argued that any indecency only referred to sexual immorality, specifically adultery. And so a Jewish man, according to the school of Shammai, could only divorce his wife if she had committed adultery against him. And that was the only valid biblical ground for divorce in their eyes. And so that was in the air when Jesus came on the scene in the first century AD. And so Jesus and Paul, both of whom are, you know, very much Jewish men who see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law and not simply as something else entirely. That was the water they were swimming in. That was the air they were breathing in. Now, of course, we know that Jesus and Paul both interpret the Old Testament differently than their Jewish contemporaries did in a number of places. But there are also places where they actually agree with their Jewish contemporaries on the interpretation of the Old Testament. So in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, when we hear what Jesus says about divorce in those passages, he says, you know, you have heard it said, you know, give your wife a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, uh, any man who divorces his wife, except for adultery, makes her commit adultery. And so when Jesus says that, and he repeats that in his uh, argument with the Sad, I think it's either the Sadducees, I think it's the Sadducees in Matthew 19, but regardless, when he says that again in Matthew 19, he's actually, like, he's not just saying that out of thin air. He's actually weighing in on what was a very live and controversial Jewish debate of his day. But here's the important thing. Coming back around to Exodus chapter 21, both the schools of Shammai and Hillel would have agreed that if a husband was abusing his wife, she could petition the court for, to convince her husband to give her a divorce and free her to remarry. And so I think even though this is technically an argument from silence, I think it's significant that in Matthew, which is the most Jewish gospel and engages most deeply with the Jewish law, when Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage, he doesn't bring up Exodus 21, and he doesn't seem to contradict 
at least in my view, he doesn't seem to contradict what would have been the consensus among Jews of his day. And what I think is even more compelling is when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where Paul talks about divorce and remarriage, even though Paul doesn't explicitly cite Exodus chapter 21, at different points in chapter 7, he repeats the requirements that are put forward in Exodus chapter 21. But what's interesting is he actually applies it to both the male and the female. Yeah. So in Exodus 21, it simply says, the husband may not deny the wife her conjugal rights. That is, he cannot you know, deny her her sexual rights as his wife. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you know, he says, neither husband nor wife should deny each other their marital rights, their, their sexual rights as a married couple. And then if you read 1 Corinthians 7 carefully with Exodus 21, 10 through 11 open next to you, you'll see a bunch of points where, hey, Paul seems to be getting this idea from there. And since Paul knew his Old Testament way better than just about any of us today probably do, I don't think it's a coincidence that they match up. And I think Andy Nacelli, he wrote a great article for the Detroit Baptist Theological Journal on this. It's like 40-some pages long, really exhaustive. But he dedicates a section specifically to these correspondences, and I think he makes a really compelling case that Paul is deliberately alluding to Exodus 21 when outlining his understanding of the obligations that husband and wife have for one another. And so that is where I come to the conclusion that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, even though he doesn't say so explicitly, would have considered abuse and neglect a legitimate reason for divorce, because that's how all of his Jewish contemporaries also would have read Exodus 21. All right, right. That's man. wonderful. Good stuff. I really appreciate it. that. Was awesome teaching, brother. Yeah. Uh, very, very good stuff. So then that Thank brings you. me to like another point that I think is um, kind of in in our notes is like, hey, I'm gonna push back on you a little bit here. So mm-hmm. Jesus reconciles sinners, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How is divorce then permissible uh, in the case of abuse or except? or acceptable for a Christian who claims that Jesus forgives and makes things right. Like, where do you draw the line? And look, uh, let's say I have someone coming to me, so I, I'm being abused. Like, does Scripture give us some type of insight into where that line is drawn on abuse? Yeah. So this is a really tough question. Because, I know, I put a hard one to you. Yeah. <laughs> It's true that Jesus is capable of transforming even the most hardened sinner and bringing him or her to repentance. Jesus can reconcile people who nobody else could ever hope to reconcile, and undeserved forgiveness is a a prime virtue of the Christian faith. But here's the thing. As Christians, I don't think we can say that divorce is never, ever permitted. So just zooming out a little bit, beyond just the question of abuse and divorce specifically, just divorce generally, I don't think we can say biblically that divorce is never, ever permitted because of texts like Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7, which give explicit sanction for divorce in cases of adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Yeah. So here's the thing. 
Jesus is certainly capable of bringing about reconciliation in those circumstances. Like Jesus can bring reconciliation between a spouse and a spouse who has committed adultery. So if if a husband cheats on his wife, Jesus is certainly capable of miraculously bringing about repentance, transformation, and restoration in that marriage. That certainly can happen. But even though that is certainly possible, Scripture doesn't therefore argue on that basis that divorce is not permissible in the case of adultery. And then with 1 Corinthians 7, an abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, Christ can certainly bring that unbelieving spouse to repentance and to belief and cause them to come back and want to reunite with their Christian spouse. Or even Jesus could miraculously, even if he didn't bring them all the way to the point of faith, still be still convince them, oh, well, I should go back to my Christian spouse. It was wrong of me to leave them, and I'll stay married to them. And so Jesus certainly could bring about redemption and reconciliation in those circumstances. But just because reconciliation is possible, that doesn't mean that the possibility precludes the legitimacy of divorce in certain circumstances. And that's where I think the abuse I, th- I think we can apply that general principle to abuse as well. Even though we could argue theoretically, yes, God can save even an abusive marriage. That doesn't necessarily mean that abuse, or that doesn't necessarily mean that divorce is automatically precluded. And with abuse specifically, I'd want to be super, super careful because, frankly, we're talking about the life and well-being of the abused spouse here. It's That's right. Well said. Yeah, yeah. And another thing, abusers are often just really good at manipulating and lying to people and at hiding their abuse. And I'm not sure I would ever be comfortable making the judgment call that an abuser has truly repented and is no longer a danger to his or her spouse. I'm not yeah. qualified to make that kind of call. Someone's life may be on the line, and I would never want a victim of abuse to get hurt or even killed because I mistakenly was duped by an abuser who managed to trick me into thinking he or she had changed their ways. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also just want to add one more thing with with the idea of a like reconciliation occurring in an abusive marriage. I want to be very clear that in this case, the burden of responsibility, the bulk of that burden falls squarely on the shoulders of the abuser because they're the one who's violated the marriage covenant through their abuse. They're the ones who need to change and to repent. The victim of abuse, while they're not a sinless person in this particular scenario, they're not the ones who are guilty. They're not the ones who have broken the marriage covenant. And so it's not their responsibility personally to fix or save their abuser. I might be stealing this quote from someone, but I don't remember who said it specifically, but it's a great line. And the quote goes something like this. Jesus died for your abuser. You don't have to. And I think that's a really meaningful and helpful way of looking at it because, I mean, on one hand, it's true. Jesus does call us to take up our cross and follow him, die to ourselves, to sacrifice our rights for the well-being of others. But then you've also got Jesus saying in John, I willingly give up my life. No one takes it from me. 
And you have the Apostle Paul, who is certainly willing to suffer and die for his faith, and yet in many cases exercises both his legal rights as a Roman citizen and uses wisdom and prudence to escape from persecution, to protect himself and his well-being or the well-being of people who are around him. And so while I do think it is certainly a good and beautiful thing when a Christian sacrifices their rights and willingly puts themselves in harm's way for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people, I think we're going too far if we try to force someone to do that. I don't think it's right for us as for pastors or for a local church to say someone, tell someone, you have to give up your life for this specific person. I don't think that's wise or helpful. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's so much more in on this topic, you know, whenever you're thinking about, I, you know, I'm a theonomist, so I love reading the law and uh, just the justness of God's law um, and the mm-hmm. fact of... You know, like, so there, there's one thing that we need to understand with the, the divorce issue. The divorce issue does not bring equity. It just gets the person out. Um, but there still needs to be recompense. I mean, just, I mean, it's a good thing to get people out of that relationship. And so if they can get divorced, get away, whatever, uh, you can do that no matter what. You need to separate if somebody is, you know, you need to run. You need to tell if you are a Christian, you need to go to your elders. Um, they need to listen to you, take you seriously. And if they're not, they're also being abusers too, if they don't take you seriously. Um, but you know, you need to get out. And uh, if your church isn't willing to help you, that's why the civil magistrate is around. There's laws and stuff like that. Um, but the wonderful thing about God's law would say that, you know, like I'm just thinking of like all the scenarios, say if the, if she went to his parents um, and they told him, stop, stop, stop. And he becomes disobedient, just like a drunkard or something like that. Um, that means that he could be put to death because he was disobeying his parents in regard to them teaching him to respect his wife. So there is so much in toto whenever you think about God's law that could actually happen to an abuser. Um, and you don't have to just go for a quick divorce just to get away because if that's, if that's all there is, there's no equity in that. The victim doesn't get paid. The victim doesn't get things back. And so God is all about equity. God is all about justice. And so if somebody's being, um, beaten like that and they just get away nothing's been paid back that's right and so you know we need you know if we need to look about the whole law and not just the specific thing with divorce but they they need to get away but you know if there is a way out if she can petition to have that man beaten to then get the divorce and go and be free because we also have to worry about in the um context of israel you know that she would be used goods without that certificate and if she had the certificate and if she was okay to remarry then she could be taken care of so it becomes an economic issue to where she can be taken care of she can um you know she's safe um with somebody so marriage is an economic um thing as well you know there's so many facets to get in here but you know if you can leave if you can get out of that you know be where where you're talking about the line to me is like because divorce is arbitrary anyway it was given because of sin so so one nice thing we get to do is we do have some folks that ask live questions and stuff and one of our uh one of our partners here in the ministry, his name is Travis Rennick. He's got a great question, and I, and I thought it was pretty good, and I uh, really appreciate Travis. He's always good at stuff like this. Uh, here's his question, Josh. Um, who should make the decision in these very delicate situations in light of Matthew 19? Mm. Yeah, so in light of Matthew 19 specifically? Yeah. So- I'm assuming he's talking about, you know, church discipline in that. I know in Travis, it is. And I know that wasn't a question we asked you to prep for, but you're, you're a solid guy, and uh, I know you'll be ready. <laughs> yeah, so 
when it comes specifically to abuse, I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, thank God in America, that's a crime. There are some countries where you can horribly abuse your wife mm-hmm. or your or your spouse, and like the law doesn't say anything about that just because it's not a just society. And America is not a perfectly just society, but thankfully, you know, it's a crime to abuse your spouse. And so, you know, as God says in through Paul in Romans thirteen, God has instituted the civil authorities, and they do not bear the sword in vain. And so, I do think that when you're talking about situations of abuse, it's very important to remember that this is not a strictly in-house local church affair. This also concerns the laws of man and the governing authorities as set up by God. And so, if you're going to be making decisions. It's not just you there in the local church making that decision. You have to consider also what the civil authorities would say. Yeah, right on. And I also, I also am a, uh, I'm a Baptist through and through. So I, um, I believe personally in elder-led congregation-ruled churches, yeah. but with you know individual soul competency. And so I would say, I, I would hope certainly that the elders of a local church, if caring for a person who's being abused, that they would do their best to avail themselves of all the resources available to them, talking to, you know, licensed mental health professionals who specialize in abuse and situations like this, talking to attorneys and legal authorities, just doing everything they can to fully understand, okay, how best can we take care of and protect this person who's being abused. And I would hope that the elders would, you know, then, you know, make a decision that is very wise and informed by the best of the expertise that they can find. But of course, the elders themselves are not infallible. And the congregation, I, I would hope and pray that a congregation as a whole if the elders themselves maybe are not exercising the proper wisdom and discernment, maybe they aren't actually consulting experts on domestic violence and are just operating on their own wisdom, or they aren't contacting the legal authorities when they should be, I would hope that the the congregation as a whole at that point might step in and say, no, we, we really need to be more careful here because again, this is church discipline and church discipline belongs to the congregation as a whole first corinthians 5 and i would hope that they would say no like we this is very serious and we need to be extra careful and consider what domestic violence experts and you know legal authorities have to say but again even the congregation isn't necessarily infallible and so while i certainly believe in the you know, that God has given the keys to the local church. I do also believe in individual soul competency and that each of us individually will give an account before God for our decisions one day. And so I do think that if a person is being abused, I certainly hope it would never come to this, but if a person is being abused and the elders and the church are not taking the matter seriously enough and are not actually serving to protect and care for the victim of abuse to try and keep them from harm. I think the individual Christian in that situation has the right to do what they need to do to protect themselves. And if they're, if they have children to protect their children from harm, and I would hope it would never come to that, but 
sadly, many churches and many elders of churches simply, you know, they're sinful fallen people, they're fallible, and they don't always make the right choices. And so, yeah, that's sort of how it would go in my mind. Like, talk, talk to the elders. If the elders are making poor choices, the congregation needs to step in. But if the congregation is not exercising wisdom and discernment, then the individual Christian has the right to step out and say, okay, I'm going to separate myself from this congregation and do what I need to do to protect myself. That would certainly be tragic and not ideal, but I think it's justified. Yeah, and that'd be probably a rare case. <laughs> you know, like that'd probably be on the the rare side of the case that we're, we're going to an extreme just to get there. Yeah. Uh, but wouldn't you also say that there would be a distinction in there because ecclesiastical authority has only ecclesiastical authority. Um, and it yeah. can only goes so far. And then you, you know, I think you said that, you know, reconcile with each other because if you go to the civil magistrate level, you're going to pay every last penny. So, I mean, as a church or to forgive one another and all that kind of stuff, but then you have a distinction here too, right? What if they're with an unbelieving spouse that's abusing them, then that would shift mm-hmm. the authority then, right? To take them straight to the civil magistrate and make them pay. Right. Exactly. I think that's actually a really important point because in First Corinthians 7, I, my understanding, and this has been informed by commentaries, I didn't come up with this by myself, but one of the reasons that Paul tells a person that if you have an unbelieving spouse and they decide to leave you because you're a Christian, you're no longer under bondage. A huge driving factor in Paul giving that piece of pastoral wisdom is the simple fact that an unbelieving spouse is not going to listen to the church. They're not under the authority of the local church. They're not going to care what Paul or the elders at Corinth say. And so, of course, it's like there's no reasonable expectation that the church can step in to remedy that situation. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, basically, in this situation, say it's the case of two uh, believers in a church. Um, There's Mm -hmm. abuse. It's brought forward to the elders. Uh, They need to do something. They need to tell the person that's uh, abusing to repent. If you know, so it's it's the it's the process. The hey, repent. No, okay. Two people repent. No, okay. Church, repent. No, throw them out there. An unbeliever. They're so embarrassed. They might run and abandon you anyway. So you know, it's it's trusting a process um, that Jesus has installed um, instead of you know. So it, we can run, but you know, we also need to pay mind that you know Christ has given us the knowledge um, and all this kind of stuff to where, you know, there's these systems installed that we, we don't like authority. And so we want to just kind of take it on ourselves. but we also need to recognize we need to be faithful. And so there is so much there that you can find beautiful. Like you can force that person out to where you can be safe. You know, they're an unbeliever. Basically they've turned from a Christian to, they've been exposed as the unbeliever they are because they put on that mask. Like you said, with abusers, they're really good at masking that and, and putting on that mask of whatever they need to do to survive. Right. And so then you, you expose that unbelieving nature, they're embarrassed and they, they, they leave the person that they're abusing, which then frees up the person and there is no shame. Yeah. Yes. Which is, I mean, again, Josh laws beautiful. So many great things in this article. I want to commend you. I thought this was so well written. Um, a few little comments that I think are, are key. Um, there is a distinct difference between spousal abuse and someone leaving in adultery. And I, I think that those are key pieces yeah. uh, when it comes to reconciliation and how you would reconcile those things. Yeah. Um, I love you know your comments there just on how, well, hey, an abuser 
gosh, if they're, you know, just to be a little more crass, if a, if a man is beating his wife, physically beating his wife, and he continues to do that, and he's, oh, I'm, I'm done with that. I would, you know, my advice would be don't move back in there for quite some time. That's a whole different thing than uh, someone falling into sexual sin. Yeah. And, yeah. But even then, there's still a repeated element of that. And so, mm-hmm. I guess one of the things I think you do so well, and I think it really speaks to Baptist life, is you've demonstrated in this article and even in today's discussion, like, look, the worst sin in the world isn't divorce. In fact, there's times when it's the most right thing for one who is following Christ to do. And I really appreciated that argument. Um, I want to key in on one last little piece here, and I, and I think this is a real key. Uh, when, if you were giving some pastoral advice to a young pastor, right, as they enter into the pastorate and they begin to prepare for some of these things, what would be some key pieces you might give them uh, when it comes to being ready to engage in this discussion? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad that you specifically worded the question that way because, you know, like, whenever you gave me the outline or wrote after the discussion, you said, you know, how, what advice would you give a pastor to best handle the situation? And my answer to that question would have been be proactive. Yeah. Don't wait for this situation to arise before you start studying and learning about it. Like you, if you think you want to, if you're even considering going into the pastorate, you don't get a whole lot of courses on domestic abuse and how to respond in seminary that might be covered in like part of one unit of like a practical theology or pastoral counseling course, but there's just like, it could, that subject alone could easily be a class, but it usually isn't. And so I would say if you're even thinking of pastoral ministry, be proactive on availing yourself of resources, read up on, you know, read books, read articles, watch videos, listen to lectures and podcasts that talk about this subject and talk about it from a variety of angles, the mental health angle, the legal angle, the church angle, so on and so forth. I think it's also really valuable to read and listen to the actual firsthand testimony of people who've been victims of abuse Mm -hmm. and talk about it because, you know, for one thing, people who've been through that and then publicly put it out there, what they've been through, I think that's a very brave thing to do. And I think if you want to deal with this faithfully, one of the best things you can do is to read that or to listen to that so that you can understand and begin to sort of empathize and say, okay, so this is the kind of thing that goes on inside someone's head. This is what it's like to be on that end of the abuse. And I think that's really important. If you're actually going, like if you've crossed the line from thinking about being a pastor to actually you're going to become a pastor, whether you're you've just been called to a church somewhere or you're about to start, or you just started, I would say one of the best things you can do is not just read and listen to stuff anymore, but try to reach out to actual people. And so like, just to take an example from, you know, Dave, you and I being around SBU, you know, you're in Buffalo, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. So you're a reasonable drive from Southwest Baptist university. And so, like if I were to suddenly start as the new pastor of that your church tomorrow, Lord willing, that won't happen. I think you're probably doing a great job, but uh, I'm sure you'd do fine. Oh, thank you. You'd but, probably be an improvement. Uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> but hypothetically, if that situation came up and I found out I was going to be at your church starting tomorrow, 
I would look over at the SBU faculty page and I'd look at the Department of Social Work, the Department of Psychology, and I would see if any of the faculty there have specific training or expertise in caring for victims of domestic abuse. And then I'd just shoot them an email and say, hey, my name is Joshua Sharp. I'm a new pastor in the area. I want to be proactive about preparing to care for victims of abuse if they ever come to me. Would you ever be interested in either talking on the phone, getting coffee or lunch? Or is there someone that you think I should connect to? And just reaching out to people and being like, okay, like, what are best practices? What are things I need to know? I, and honestly, those people, if a situation actually arises, like I, I had amazing psychology professors in undergrad. And I know that if I were anywhere near the area and someone came to me, as I'm pastoring and they were being abused, some of my old psychology professors are probably some of the first people I would call and say, oh my goodness, I need help because this is real now. And so I think that really, that's what I would do. And then of course, also make sure to read up on the biblical and theological side of things too. Yes. Yes. Hey, I really thought this was a great piece and you've got something very, very useful there. Your advice there is is awesome. I, you know, uh, we are mostly an apologetics podcast, worldview podcast, but such a great pastoral resource, Josh. I did not want to miss out on this opportunity. Um, man, we're so grateful that you've come on and uh, hope you get moved in the right area. And uh, congratulations, uh, MDiv. Uh, very, very good um, from a great school. And uh Continue to work with those Texas Baptists. Get them, get them set straight. Okay. If you see Leighton Flowers, tell them we said hey. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much for uh, being on a part of the show, man. And uh, uh, this is a very important topic that we haven't tackled yet. So I'm glad we got to tackle it with you. And uh, we will reach out to you in the future about some things. Love to have you come on and give us, you know, a, maybe a little bit different perspective than even what we hold on some things, because you'll do so in a respectful and well-informed manner. And I just appreciate you've created a great resource, and uh, I hope that some pastors will check it out and be blessed by it. I'm sure they will. Thanks, Dave. All right, Thanks man, Josh. And it's great to meet you, Ray Ray. Oh, great to meet you, man. Thank you. Keep up the good work, brother. See you around. Thank you. All right. Yeah, that was wonderful. We haven't ever show, dealt man. with divorce. And, you know, no. it's like, you know, divorce and an apologetics podcast. Well, guess what? The way the church handles divorce is an apologetic. You know, again, we're the church. We are to be the manifold wisdom of God, right? We're right. supposed to display the manifold, manifold wisdom of God. This is dealing with God's law and what he's, he's called the civil magistrates to, the family to, the church to, the three uh, circles of government um, that God has instituted uh, in his creation. And so, yeah, so why an apology? Why, again, this, this keeps on going to why theology and apologetics are inextricably tied and you can't separate the two. Um, so I hope that uh, this has been so beneficial to you, like dealing with the divorce issue big deal um and and we got to talk about it it's got to be talked about it's been such like a taboo in society um because of the prosperity gospel and all that kind of stuff the way that um, the american way is we don't talk about our weaknesses um but it's through our weaknesses that god is strong and divorce mm. and that everything that leads up to divorce is completely a weakness that god can redeem man uh josh just wrote a great article you could yeah. i was so thankful for that piece i think it was a good piece and just 
was excited to get him on. Never really, uh, as I sat next to him in class, there was no podcast at that time. It was just, oh, yeah. hey, he was a sharp guy, he's going places. And man, he put, put together a good resource, had great advice. If you have a friend that's a pastor or someone that you know that's wrestling with this issue, I want to encourage you to share this with him. I think it was yeah. a good piece. And again, Travis, thank you so much for your contribution as well. This is the Tag Podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I'm Dave. And Soli. Deo. Gloria. Gloria.